I think too what's important is he said that most people know right from wrong or people know yes means yes, most people know that. And I think that's what we take for granted. Most people unfortunately don't know that. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Full Frontal with Samantha B, The Trump Cast, The Majority Report, In Deep with Angie Coiro, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Edge of Sports with Dave Zirin, and a TED Talk by Clementine Ford. If you did not pay any attention to the news over the Columbus Day weekend, Uh, an audio tape in which Donald Trump is having a conversation with TV host Billy Bush has leaked. This is from 2005. In it, Trump is heard using uh, everything from sexually aggressive to lewd language, including comments that sound like he's talking about uh, doing what he wants to women sexually, regardless of what it is that they want based on his celebrity status. Let's listen to just a little bit of the tape. Take a look. You got to really set this up. That's that is very funny. You give me the thumbs up. Okay. You are. Okay. You got to put the thumbs up. You got to put the thumbs up. Can't be too happy. Can you give me the thumbs up? Okay. It's very funny. You got to give me the thumbs up. Are you and I will love that. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's a different one. Better not be the publicist. No, it's it's her. Yeah, that's her. With the gold. I'm going to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just like, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. I can do anything. Yeah. I'm not going to play all three minutes. I do want to tread carefully for our affiliate stations and the FCC restrictions that they have. Fortunately, no restrictions on cringe, because if so, this video would not be allowed anywhere. Trump hitting on married women while married to Melania Trump. Here is Donald Trump's apology slash explanation that was released, I think, just hours after this video broke. We will put it up on the screen for you. This was locker room banter, a private conversation that took place many years ago. Bill Clinton has said far worse to me on the golf course, not even close. I apologize if anyone was offended. Apologizing if anyone was offended is not the same as actually just apologizing. Uh, Most importantly, however, Bill Clinton is not running for president of the United States. Even better is Melania Trump's statement about this. We'll put up a quote from Melania Trump, who on Saturday said, quote, the words my husband used are unacceptable and offensive to me. This does not represent the man I know. He has the heart and mind of a leader. I hope people will accept his apology as I have and focus on the important issues facing our nation and the world. Funny how everyone should accept Melania's choice to stay with Donald Trump, respect that and focus on the issues. But everybody should ignore Hillary Clinton's decision to stay with Bill Clinton and keep talking about that. Funny how the double standards just constantly pop up. Shut up, girl. It ain't about you, girl. It's all about me, girl. Don't you see my name on the on the building, girl? I want a president. I'm a I'm a phone the world. I'm a star. When you're a star, they let you do it. I'm a star because I made it. I'm rich and I'm famous. Woo! Donald Trump said a grab your body book. Donald Trump said a grab your body book. Yeah, baby. I'm a star and I'm famous. Woo! Donald Trump said a grab your body book. Donald Trump said a grab your body pussy. No, you got it all. 
I'm not just television's only female late night host. I'm also, thank you, I'm also the, the female mother of two female daughters. And like any lady parent, I want my girls to dream big. I want to be a teacher when I grow up. When I grow up, I want to be a gymnastics teacher. And a doctor and an artist. A ballerina. I'm going to be in a hip hop show. Really? Can you get me tickets to Hamilton in like 20 years? Yeah. Girls, you can be anything you want. Girl power. Let's take a closer look at your options in Samantha B's hashtag roar. You go, girl. Job fair for future women. Lean in. Let's start with, oh, park ranger. You get to be outdoors. Plus, there's those extra vacation days when President Cruz forces another government shutdown. It's a dream job. A federal watchdog report that charts a history of sexual abuse at Grand Canyon National Park. Some of the allegations include one employee taking a picture of the skirt of another employee. Male park employees accused of propositioning female co-workers for sex, touching them inappropriately or making lewd comments. Fellas, don't get greedy. You've already got one majestic crevice to explore at work. <laughs> now, according to the report, women who refused sexual advances might have had their food withheld or find cans of fecal matter left outside their tent. Oh, she wouldn't sleep with me before. Maybe this... Maybe the gift of my poop will charm her out of her cargo shorts. And speaking of big metal cans full of poop, cruise ships. Wow, what a fun place to work, unless you need birth control. Oh, go Jezebel. Now, according to the MaxiPad of record, Norwegian Cruise Lines has told employees that they'll no longer have access to emergency contraceptives unless they've been raped. If this sounds familiar, it's because it was a plot line on the non-consensual love boat. <laughs> but let's back up to the part where people are getting raped on ships. Is that normal? We talked to some actual former cruise line employees who asked that we disguise their voice and appearance, something they probably wish they could have disguised on board the ship. It's the most sexual harassment I've ever seen in any workplace. Whenever we did report sexual harassment to our superiors, they would either laugh at us, ignore us, or say, well, what do you expect? You're on a cruise ship. This is what happens. I never felt safe in crew areas. Never. One night, a crew member grabbed me and would not let me go until I made out with him. And his superior told me, oh, don't worry. His wife knows he cheats on her as though that were the problem. Cruise ships are like, oh, I'm gonna get paid and go see the world, this is great. And then inside it's like, rape town USA. It's like they always say, if this ship's a rockin', it's probably due to the sexual assault that's occurring on board. Okay, you know what? This is going great. How about a job in the city? Oh, hey, comedy! <laughs> people are always like, I wonder why there aren't more female comedians. <laughs> Maybe it's because every time a woman opens her mouth to tell a joke, someone tries to put their dick in it. <laughs> it's not a lot of guys, hashtag not all men, hashtag please don't leave me meme messages. It's just a few guys getting away with harassment and assault over and over and over again.
there are women that I know that will go into an improv scene as a scientist and then a guy will grab their boobs for no reason whatsoever. So in the real world, you wouldn't meet a scientist and then honk her boobs. You'd be surprised. That's another reason Marie Curie should have worn a lead apron. The problem is so persistent. Female comedians in Chicago, New York, and L.A. have set up secret online groups to share their stories and warn each other which serial predators to stay away from. Hooray! Sisters are doing it for themselves. And by it, I mean law enforcement. One woman, Erica, it took her years to say something about her alleged rape, and she posted in the group just saying the guy's name, and five women wrote to her Mm -hmm. telling her that they had had similar experiences. Hey, if you don't like them comparing notes, you shouldn't have taught them yes and. I'm sorry. um, Remind me again. What is the point of encouraging little girls to dream big if any career puts them in the path of boob honkers? There's not a workplace on land or sea or even at the bottom of a big deep hole in the ground where we're actually keeping women safe. Did you see how cute those kids were? Wouldn't it be so nice if they could go to work without carrying bear spray? Except for the park ranger. She definitely needs the bear spray. (laughs) You know, right now I'm actually picturing some guy saying, ugh, what am I supposed to do? Stop asking women out of work because it makes them uncomfortable? (gasps) Yes. (laughs) You are at work. If you must ask a colleague out, at least learn to take no for an answer without leaving a can of poop outside her tent. The one thing that really bugs me is when I hear the reaction to what Trump did that, oh, men do that. Men are like that. I mean, no, they're not. Even among reprehensible, harassing men, Trump is an outlier. His behavior is so extreme and so bad. I mean, I certainly think so. I think that I mean, I think to me, there's a difference between men do that and most women have at some point encountered a man like Trump. Right. I mean, in the same way that, you know, I think it's five percent of men commit all the rapes or something. It's, you know, it's some small percent of men that's doing all of the harassment, but the harassment itself, nevertheless, is ubiquitous. Right. And and Trump might be particularly um, blatant in his sense of entitlement and his kind of you know, unabashedness, but I don't, his behavior is not unusual. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of what we expect of gross, lecherous, entitled men. Right. But that's, I think you make the point that a man who goes through life behaving like that can affect hundreds or thousands of women through a lifetime. And that's, that's hundreds or thousands of victims, but it doesn't speak to that being a norm or average in male society. You know, I think that a lot of women have been left, you know, when when people say, well, this is just locker room talk. And it's very interesting to hear all the conservatives defend this as locker room talk talk without understanding the to degree to which that is a self-incriminating statement. Um, and I think most women kind of assume that the men in our lives don't 
talk like that. You know, the men in my life don't spend a lot of time in locker rooms, thank God. But, um, you know, you they're know. <laughs> actually gay men in locker rooms. I mean, you can't, right. you know, you can't talk like, I mean, when I hear them say that, I, t- I take that to mean I feel comfortable talking like that in the right environment. But right. it, I don't think it's an dis- accurate descriptive point. Well, that's something I will have. I have no way of knowing. I certainly hope is true. But I think, again, it's so interesting because when women in the past have talked about, you know, sexual assault, men will come out and say, you know, you'll hear conservative men. Well, not all men. Not all men are like that. And in this particular instance, they're saying all men are like that. <laughs> <laughs> Promise you the future. Say you got a plan. When it took his daddy's fortune To make that boy a man The truth is all around It's plain enough to see He wanna turn the clock Back on you and me So now we're traveling Backwards We're traveling Back Meanwhile, you have all these examples. I, I don't know how many I just lift, listed off in this piece, in this timeline. And there's probably more now. But dozen? Is it a dozen that I list off? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know. Examples of Trump either kissing Groping, grabbing, walking in on five naked teenagers purposely, all of which without his consent. And what you folks don't realize is the problem here is that you're so uptight about this notion of consent. Allow Rush Limbaugh, the intellectual pillar, really, I mean, the longtime leader of the conservative movement, to explain. The most insightful thing I've read yet about the Donald Trump sex talk scandal is this. How ironic, then, that a culture which rejects moral standards and make no bones, folks, we do. Standards, moral state. You stand up for moral standards, you're going to be mocked and laughed out of the room. They're going to call you a prude. They're going to call you a Victorian. They're going to call you an old fuddy-duddy, an old fogey, and they're going to claim you want to deny people having a good time. So, a culture which rejects moral standards. In other words, anything goes. You know what the magic word, the only thing that matters in American sexual mores today is one thing. You can do anything. The left will promote and understand and tolerate anything as long as there is one element. Do you know what it is? Consent. If there is consent on both or all three or all four, however many are involved in the sex act, it's perfectly fine. Whatever it is. 
But if the left ever senses and smells that there's no consent in part of the equation, then here come the rape police. Well, it's not just the rape police. It's the police police who should be coming. I mean, think about what the argument is here by Rush Limbaugh. The most insightful thing about Donald Trump is that we have such moral decay where liberals allow any two consenting adults or three consenting adults or four consenting adults. Can one imagine five consenting adults can do whatever they want as long as they all agree that they're interested in doing it sexually? But if there's just one person or one person who's not legally uh, allowed to give their consent, who's involved, call the police. I, I mean, I feel like we should just like, okay, and cut. We're done with the show. No more reason to. You've actually got Rush Limbaugh now bemoaning, bemoaning the fact that we live in a society where all you need to do if you want to have sex is just agree with two adults as opposed to the way it used to be, where all you needed was one consenting adult. My consent, my friends. But no, we're so picky where it has to be consent from everybody involved. Watch us the one thing now. (laughs) (laughs) You can do whatever you like. Two adults meet each other at a bar. They choose to go home together. They do whatever's disgusting. But then all of a sudden, consent. I mean, it's just maybe the lady goes, "Ooh, I don't want this. That's against my will and choice. All of a sudden, the left is all concerned about sexual mores. (laughs) Wait, I don't want to be physically dragged into an alley and assaulted. Oh, all of a sudden, the left has gotten morals. I'd be convinced that right now, Rush Limbaugh is on there going like, Oh, but they'll give Chinatown the Academy Award. <laughs> Chinatown was a great movie, right? I gotta believe that even Limbaugh's audience is going like, wait, what? Are we supposed to be now pro just one person consenting to a sexual act? It's it's nuts. You can literally do anything. And all of a sudden. What are you doing? You don't even know this woman. She's a fine young thing. She don't need grooming. She's a human being. She's got a brain. And remembers everything you say, which reminds me. Hi, sorry to talk about you. Anyway, Jabby got things to do. Women? No, that's what I'm trying to say. Let's let this out to the right extent. This guy wants you, but only with your consent. Only with your consent. Only with your consent. Only with your consent. 
pretty amazing. I just got handed this card and we were talking about what rape culture is and whether it truly exists. And this is worth going into in detail. I am a woman, says our audience member, who went through the same thing as Emily Doe. When I attended a party, I drank too much. Perhaps some pills were put in my drink. I lost control of my body. This man took me out of the building and raped me. I said no many times. He didn't care. I kept it quiet. It still hurts. I know that keeping it quiet was best. I wish Emily's rape would have been validated and Turner would have been sentenced and presumably sentenced properly. He did get sentenced. That opens up the question of rape culture, what it is, and whether it's provably extant, Imani. I know there are a lot of people um, who like to think that rape culture is a myth and that it's just a bunch of hysterical women being hysterical. And if women would just keep their legs closed and not drink and not go outside and not talk to anyone, then rape wouldn't be a problem. And there's also this overwhelming feeling that rape is only when a guy grabs you off the street and drags you into the bushes. But most rapes are acquaintance rapes. They're rapes by people that you know. It, it becomes difficult for women who are friends with someone who rapes them to try and figure out how to negotiate that. And it also becomes difficult for, it shouldn't be difficult, but for some reason it seems to be difficult for parents to teach their children, their boys, and some women, but you know, most rape is, is, is perpetrated by men. What consent means, what bodily autonomy means, what it means to touch someone when that's not wanted. Rape culture is a real thing. There's a reason why most rapes go unreported. It's because rape victims are treated horribly by the media, by the system. Um, they are dragged through the mud. Their lives are opened up for examination and everything from how much they were drinking to how many people they slept with before to whether or not they initially agreed to the sexual encounter when it, and, then, and it then turned into rape, whether it's even possible to rape a drunk person. I mean, these are questions that feminists and social justice activists have been reckoning with and trying to come up ways to explain to people, you can't touch people without asking them. You can't touch people without their consent. You certainly cannot penetrate someone without their consent. Even if they're drunk, even if you're both drunk, you can't have sex with drunk people and think that that's okay. Um, it breaks my heart to know that there are women out there who have been raped, whomever, whomever wrote that question. Um, that breaks my heart because... The fact that she felt it necessary to say it was best for me to not report it. There there are a lot of people who seem to think that rape victims are required to report their rapists, because if they don't, then what if that person goes out and rapes somebody else? Well, a rape victim needs to care for herself first. They need to be concerned about their own trauma, their own mental state. And yes, it would be wonderful if every rape victim felt like they could come forward and try to stop it from happening to someone else. But then again, that person is opening themselves up to a lot of harsh treatment. And why would you want to do that? You've already gone through one of the worst things you'll ever go through in your entire life. The last thing you want to do is to have that triggered again and again and again as you go through a legal process that is ultimately not going to treat you fairly. Well, what about Saj's point that the accused has the right to confront and ask all kinds of questions of the purported victim? Absolutely. I agree. They have the right to ask certain questions. And I can't remember the case, and I'm sure that you will remember, but, you know, it used to be that you could ask questions about pri previous sexual encounters. And yeah, no now the can. law is actually very regimented in yeah. terms of what you can and can't ask about, especially in terms of prior sexual behaviors or experiences, things like that. It's It's very... Uh, limited. There have been protections that have been imposed to limit that type of muckraking, essentially. Right. And I think that just, I think rape culture comes into play even in the types of questions that 
victims are asked on the stand. It seems to me the way that victims are treated or alleged victims are treated on the stand is also very much a product of rape culture. I remember there was a YouTube video that was circulating several years ago of like a, it was like a four-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl. And the four-year-old boy just really wanted to hug the four-year-old girl. And he kept hugging her and the four-year-old girl just kept pushing him away. And he kept hugging her and she kept pushing him away. And people were like, oh, that's so cute. You know, this four-year-old, they just want to hug. That's not cute. You know, that's teaching from a young age that it's okay for a four-year-old boy to continue to persist to want to hug a girl, even though she doesn't want it. And so it's sort of rejiggering one's thinking about something as simple as a hug between two preschoolers that can have severe consequences for how that child grows up and how that girl grows up, knowing that, you know, I can tell this young kid that I don't want to hug him and it doesn't matter because he's going to hug me anyway because he's a boy and he feels entitled. Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. They sell high-quality razors and shaving products directly to you, which means no more hassling with those drugstores and their impenetrable razor fortresses or sky-high prices. Because Dollar Shave Club is about one-third of the price of those greedy razor corporations, and they ship your orders right to your door. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all of their products that right now, they're going to give you your first month for free when you join the club. So just go to dollarshaveclub.com best, pick the razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades, and that's all there is to it. If you want a first-class shave, choose their executive blade and combine it with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for the smoothest shave ever. Here's your chance to see for free why over 3 million members already love Dollar Shave Club. You only pay for shipping, and after that, it's a few bucks a month. No long-term commitment, no hidden fees. There's no reason not to do it, so get yours at dollarshaveclub.com best. That's dollarshaveclub.com best. But here, here's the genius of the Trump campaign, and this is what really pissed me off this weekend. He gets caught on the tape boasting about sexual assault, and then they manage to spin it as something much different. This was locker room talk. That's what is said in a locker room. He was just talking about it with the boys amongst the bus, um, like the locker room. Two things about that locker room excuse. Uh, first, they're conflating sex talk and sexual assault talk, all right? Trying to make Trump's comments sound normal is not something that they're achieving, because I'm sorry, that is not normal. There is a big difference between saying dirty words and glorifying non-consensual sexual contact. Not every guy has these conversations. No, that's a crime. That's a crime. There is a big difference. People are like, oh, come on, guys talk dirty. Yeah, guys talk dirty, but guys are not all having conversations about sexual assault. It feels like more people are focused on, he said pussy. It's not about that. It's about him saying he forces himself on women. You tell me what's worse. A guy who says, uh, last night I dined with a lovely lady and immediately afterwards I escorted her back to her residence and proceeded to caress her genitals despite her lack of invitation. <laughs> oh, oh, is this one worse? Oh, man, last night I was rolling with this bad bitch and I was like, yo, you gonna let me smash that ass? And she said no. And I was like, okay, no pussy for me. (laughs) Which one is worse? Which one is worse? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Neither of them is ideal, but one of them is crude and the other is against the law. (laughs) 
There's a big difference. It's not just, oh, locker room talk, locker room. No, it's not just locker room talk. Oh, and by the way, Trump can try to excuse his behavior by calling it locker room talk, but you realize he wasn't in a locker room. He was at a TV interview. If you conduct locker room talks everywhere, it's not the locker room, it's you, mother It's you! It's the locker room talk. Outraged that he's being asked to take classes at his university that inform him about the issue of consent and sexual assault on college campuses. He feels that this is painting a negative picture of males on college campuses and unfortunately makes him seem as though he's a sexist. So here's what he has to say. His name is George Lawler. And uh, he is studying politics and sociology at Warwick University. And he wrote that he was invited to a class via Facebook and found it, quote, a massive, painful, bitchy slap in the face and the biggest insult he's received in a good few years, right? Now, keep in mind that this is just the normal type of class that you take when you're at a college campus. It's just to educate you on what is and isn't consent. And a lot of people think consent is black and white. In a lot of cases, it is. But sometimes when there's alcohol involved on a college campus or at a college-related party, the water gets a little murkier. It's mm -hmm. a little more difficult to determine what is and is not consent. However, he doesn't see it that way. He says, I don't have to be taught to not be a rapist that much comes naturally to me, as I am sure it does to the overwhelming majority of people you and I know. He also says, brand me a bigot, a misogynist, a rape apologist. I don't care. I stand by that. All right, so it's interesting because his picture that he posted along with a column that he wrote in the student newspaper um, includes him holding a sign that says, this is not what a rapist looks like. And I think that's a really interesting thing to say because what does a rapist look like? That was my next question. <laughs> right? What does, what does he look, what does, how does one tell a rapist? Because if we could tell what rapist looks like, I'm pretty sure we would not be raped. We would avoid them at all costs if it was that simple to look at someone and go, oh, he's not going to rape me. It's silly. You know, 80% of rapes occur uh, between, by a man or a person, I should say, that the the victim knew already, right. right? So there's really no way to determine what a rapist looks like. It's absolutely ridiculous to say that. And it's strange that he has such a knee-jerk reaction to a class that I think can educate a lot of people, both men and women. Right. Because I know that there's this you know, misconception that rape and sexual assault only impacts women. It impacts a lot of men as well. Right. And unfortunately, he's being really resistant to something that could be helpful. At least that's the way I see it. That's true. I mean, you're right about it impacting men and women both. Sweden actually just installed a 24-hour clinic 
that deals with rape regarding only men. So this was in Stockholm outside of, you know, the, their major hospital there. I mean, this this impacts a lot of people, sir. I don't know why you're taking it so personally. Um, but perhaps some people do need lessons in consent because you're right. When you get to that place of, of no, maybe doesn't mean no right now, or we've had too much to drink, let's just cuddle, perhaps there should be some ground rules. I'm not saying that there should be a consent form that should be legally uh, signable or admissible, but perhaps there should be a class for people. I don't know why he would take it so personally, though. That's, that is a little yeah. weird. Yeah, I feel like he feels as though people are pointing the finger at him and making it seem as though he's a rapist. Yeah, it, why it doesn't, is he making it about him? It, <laughs> it's not about you. It's about educating people about situations that might seem a little difficult to decipher. And mm -hmm. again, when there's alcohol involved, when there are substances involved, it's not as clear cut. And that's mm -hmm. okay. We have conversations like that quite a bit on The Young Turks where the, you know, we disagree about the amount of alcohol involved and whether or not something is or isn't considered consent. And again, it's not as black and white as you think. And not only men are, uh, you know, told to take this class, women are told to take this class as well. So mm -hmm. it's not pointing fingers at any particular person. No, women can be predators too. I, I really want to make that point. This is not a gender issue at all. I know that typically rapes are reported mostly by women, but it's not a sexist thing here, sir. It's yeah, just not. exactly. I think too what's important is he said that, you know, most people know right from wrong, or people know yes means yes, most people know that. And I think that's what we take for granted. Most people, unfortunately, don't know that. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, culture dictates what's right or wrong, like wh wh what you're around. So that whole frat boy culture within that within that community, certain things are okay. Yes, It's the same reason why outside when a guy is at home around his family, he might be a nice boy, but when he's in that frat boy community, the culture is different. It's like, yes. yeah, and then you get boys will be boys. So it's like culture dictates what's right or wrong, and the only thing that sort of changes culture is education. So look, I, like DeAndre Levy, have spent my share of time in locker rooms. And while I understand the desire to brand Donald Trump as a uniquely misogynistic liar, I cannot say that his comments are alien to a locker room. If only the sole alleged rapist to emerge from a locker room in this country was Donald Trump, the world would be a much better and safer place. But that's just not the truth. As Samuel L. Jackson said in Pulp Fiction. But that shit ain't the truth. People can read Jessica Luther's book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, and get a crash course about how the locker room can be an incubator of rape and a fortress against anyone who would challenge this culture. I also, however, have no doubt that the athletes who are coming forward to say that they've never heard rape talk in the locker room are telling their truth. Again, I've been in many locker rooms and it is absolutely true that there is no steady stream of banter, liberated to talk freely without the tender ears of lady folk around, blabbing about how they just love to assault women. 
I personally have only heard it twice out of hundreds of locker room interactions as an athlete or a reporter. But both times, the words and deeds were anything but benign. The first time was in high school. There was an upperclassman, let's call him Brett, and he was next to me bragging to a friend about how he, if at the right party and in the right scenario, quote, could grab any tits without even talking and make any woman have sex with him. He then told a story in gross detail about the previous Saturday night when, quote, my hands were all over her body and it was over. And he topped it all off by quoting a rap song, and I still remember what song. It was by a group called Nice and Smooth of All People, where Greg Nice says, Sex, sex, sex is the lega lega law when a guy gets a girl behind the bedroom door. Look, I was a teenage silent bystander to all of this. I stood there three inches away from this discussion, and I said absolutely nothing. I'd like to say I was concerned that I'd be beat up or pushed into a locker or that I was worried about getting suspended if I got in a big fight or something, but that that would be bullshit. The truth was, I thought I'd look like a loser if I said anything. I was Billy Bush. I didn't know what rape culture or being a passive bystander meant. I knew I left the locker room, though, feeling like shit, embarrassed to face my big sister that evening. And yes, I know, I'm also sick of politicians who are saying that they're upset with Donald Trump's words because they have a sister or a mother, as if you can't just be upset about it because you're a human being, and he's talking about assaulting other human beings. But again, I'm just being honest. I was a teenage kid who looked up to my big sister, and the thought of facing her, having not said a word, was, was, was kind of harrowing. Now, that same student, Brett, was accused of rape as a senior. His parents had some sway, and the choice was to kick him out of school quietly and not involve the police. But that's not where the story ends. A couple years later, I was at a friend's house who went to high school with Brett, the new high school, and he had his senior yearbook. And I was thumbing through it, not even thinking about Brett, and I came across his senior page where you have your, you know, your picture and you get to have some sort of famous quote. And he actually chose a quote that was more rap lyrics about rape. It was all a big joke to him. And it's at this point where I should feel obliged to say that this person was white, wealthy, and entitled. And he loved rape lyrics in rap songs because they made him feel empowered. Empowered enough to brag about sexual assault in the locker room and bold enough to make people like myself feel quiet. The second time was also in high school. I had a very peaceful, hippie, vegetarian basketball coach, great guy named Coach Dan. And once he came into the locker room and told us to get our clothes on because one of the girls' team coaches, Coach Deb, was about to come in and say a few words. Now, Coach Deb was somebody who'd been coaching for decades. Uh, she was tough as hell. But, you know, of course, she was the girls' coach. So we all groaned and reached for our pants, except for one teammate I'll call Tim. Tim saw this as a moment for humor, and he said, let's keep our pants off because then we can rape her. I wish I could tell you whether laughter followed, but we didn't even get the chance to react because Coach Dan backhanded Tim across the face, making the loud kind of smack, which just shocks a whole room. 
Seeing a coach or adult authority figure hit a teenager, even a huge one like Tim, was shocking enough. Seeing Hippie Dan do it was unreal. We all stood there either stunned or shaking. Coach Dan finally spoke and broke the silence and said, I'm sorry, but there's some things you don't joke about. He then walked out of the locker room and practice was done. The incident was never mentioned. But Dan lost his joy for the job. Tim became sullen in practice. And that was the first and last locker room rape joke of the season. I'm not writing about that last interaction positively. To be perfectly clear, using violence to teach a teenage kid that rape is wrong seems like you're then caught in the same cycle of toxic masculinity that produces rape and rape culture in the first place. But even though I disagree with what Coach Dan did, he wasn't a passive bystander. And I never heard about Tim being accused of assault. One wonders if someone had intervened with Brett, if a woman or women could have been spared his predations. One wonders if someone had smacked a teenage Donald Trump if women could have been spared the decades of degradation he has so willingly projected both in his public and personal life. It is because of people like Donald Trump that a locker room can become an incubator of rape culture and a fortress against anyone who would challenge it from the outside. Inside the locker room, all athletes need to pledge that this will not fly. No one, well, maybe almost no one, needs to be smacked but the predators need to be confronted and removed don't be a rape culture bystander just be clear that quote unquote pulling a trump will not be tolerated and say loudly and proudly not in my locker room reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, hike for healing to support the monument quilt for survivors of rape and abuse. 30 years ago, the AIDS memorial quilt was displayed on the National Mall in D.C., visually representing the overwhelming devastation of HIV-AIDS and forcing the country to confront the crisis. Inspired by that first quilt, sexual assault activists have been stitching together what is called the Monument Quilt to achieve the same kind of awareness and action for survivors of rape and sexual abuse. The organization behind the quilt is called FORCE, a creative activist collaboration dedicated to, quote, upsetting rape culture and promoting a culture of consent, unquote. 
Force says the quilt will be a place of healing and that it resists the popular and narrow narrative of how sexual violence occurs by telling many stories at once, not just one. The project began in 2013 thanks to a Kickstarter campaign, and Force tweeted this week that the quilt has doubled in size in the last year, now covering a football field. Force plans to display the quilt on the National Mall in the spring of 2018, and a national year-long tour will follow. You can learn more about the quilt, view quilt squares, get information on making a quilt square, sign up and host a workshop, and volunteer at themonumentquilt.org. But this project needs materials, and the corresponding workshops for healing and activism need resources to expand. That's why on October 29th, FORCE and local organizations fighting rape culture and sexual assault across the country want you to join them in your community for Hike for Healing. Participants will hike or walk with others and raise funds for the completion of this quilt, while raising awareness about consequences of our rape culture. To find a Hike for Healing team near you or to start one in your community, go to crowdrise.com backslash hike for healing. The Monument Quilt is about giving a voice to many to show survivors they are not alone. In that spirit, we also strongly encourage you to check out the powerful hashtag Why Women Don't Report on Twitter to read survivor stories and the reasons that hold women back from reporting assaults. As the Republican candidate for president continues to personify rape culture itself and politicians continue to defend him, we encourage you to make ending rape culture part of your theory of change by getting involved in the long term with organizations like Force, Ultraviolet, Planned Parenthood, No More, RAIN, that's R-A-I-N-N, and other organizations fighting to end sexism, sexual assault, domestic violence, and abuse, and upturn the rape culture we live in. If you or someone you know has been assaulted, call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived in organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if making our country face and change rape culture is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the hashtag hike for healing to support the hashtag monument quilt for survivors of rape and sexual abuse via social media so that others in your network can take action too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change What is rape culture? If you haven't heard the term before, rape culture is basically acknowledging that we live in a society that normalises or diminishes rape through the bombardment of images, language, laws and social attitudes. It's a culture in which victim blaming is not just present but common and caveats like, well, what did she expect going home with him and oh, she was drunk, wasn't she? And well, she slept with him before and look at that skirt she was wearing. I routinely invoked to excuse perpetrators as having just kind of done what everyone would have expected them to do, done what a, a red-blooded Aussie male would do. Can't say fairer than that. I mean, she did go home with him. It's that kind of language. It's the language of lawmakers who use words like honest rape and forcible rape and legitimate rape to, dis- to portray the fact that they believe that there are actually two kinds of rape. There's the very, very, very small 
incidents of real rape. And then there are all of the overwhelming incidents of rape where women are actually just lying about it because they are so embarrassed by the fact that they've allowed something to enter their shame cave other than the Holy Spirit. Um, So that's rape culture, and I'm just going to talk you through a series of examples now of what I think rape culture looks like, and some of them are local and some of them are international, because, yay, rape culture exists everywhere. Uh, We can all share it. Um, (laughs) So rape culture is Peter Spider Everett after the 2010 AFL Grand Final, responding to allegations, and it's very important, this word, allegedly. You'll speak to people who don't believe that rape culture exists, and you'll speak to people who don't believe that men can ever be charged with rape, because, of course, women are always lying. Very, very intent on protecting the due process of the legal system, only in cases of sexual assault, where they remind you consistently that this just happened allegedly. So, Peter Spider-Everett, responding to the allegations after the 2010 AFL Grand Final, that uh, a sexual assault had occurred in the home of um, one of the Collingwood players. Now, that has since been resolved, and if you do have a chance, do read Anna Crean's Night Games, because it's a brilliant exploration of sex, power, and culture. Um, But him responding to that with the following tweet... Girls, when will you learn that at 3 a.m. when you go home drunk with a guy that it's not for a cup of Milo, allegedly? Uh, it's, it's Carrie Ann Kennelly responding to that tweet by inviting Peter Spider Everett onto her show and sympathising with him over the poor fate of footballers who have strays throw themselves at them all the time and get them in trouble. It's Channel 9 responding to the dismay and outrage, and I am grateful that it was given because not everyone likes to talk out about rape culture. But Channel 9 responding to that outrage by issuing a statement that said, in regards to the segment on Carrie Ann's show this morning, uh, what she was talking about when she talked about strays was alcohol-fueled situations in which both girls and guys must take the blame. Rape culture is reducing rape to an alcohol-fueled situation. Rape culture is Channel 9 uh, responding to these things with with such dismissive tones that it reinforces to people that it's an alcohol-fueled situation and not an actual assault on their bodies. Looking uh, further abroad, rape culture is Daniel Tosh, who's a comedian standing in front of a live audience and responding to a woman who'd taken umbrage at one of his jokes about rape by saying, (laughs) wouldn't it be funny if, like, five guys just came down and raped this woman right now? Wouldn't that be hilarious? Rape culture is also his comedy mates then defending him because comedy is sacred and women's bodies aren't. Rape culture is raising boys in an environment and a society that teaches them that they have an entitlement to women's bodies. And that is how things like Steubenville, Ohio happens. That's how things like the Roastbusters in Auckland happens, where boys think that it is so much their right to treat a woman's body as they please, that not only will they do it in front of all of their friends, rape an unconscious woman repeatedly, but they'll film it. They'll actually document the evidence and put it on the internet for everyone to see what a big man they are. In Auckland, it's the police not doing anything about it for years, even though they knew about it, because they said, we couldn't do anything about it. Rape culture is reinforcing to young girls that they don't have the right to feel safe. Rape culture is people telling women that protecting themselves from rape is like property theft. That, uh, well, you know, it's not that I believe that rape is okay, but, you know, if you're going to leave your car parked on a street with the keys in the ignition and walk away, can you really expect that someone's not going to come along and steal it? And I say to that that the, the, two, the two things that I think when I think, you know, of people calling um, uh, property theft into 
account for this is that, one, my vagina isn't a car. And if it was, I would have saved a lot more money in taxis over the years, and then I'd be able to fix its brake pads. But secondly, we're not disembodied from our bodies. Our vaginas aren't cars that we can walk away from and leave. The only way that that analogy works is if I'm sitting in the car, and you come and you open the car, and you drag me out of it, and you steal my fucking car. Your vagina is not a vehicle. But this is what rape culture looks like. Rape culture is pretending that rape culture doesn't exist. It's people preferring to believe that the women in their lives are potential victims rather than accepting that the men in their lives are potential predators. Because people like to talk about rapists as being evil monsters who lurk in the streets and shadows, and we, the women, have to protect ourselves against them. I'm not saying that rape is good, girls. I'm just saying, can't you just learn to take care of yourselves, girls? When will you learn that the world is full of evil monsters and you have to protect yourselves? Rape culture is assuming that we haven't been raised protecting ourselves, believing in the state of our own vulnerability since the very days that we were first walking out away from our parents. And on that note, actually, in the evil monsters, rape culture denies the reality of rape that most of it doesn't happen on the streets. Most of it happens in the home. It's done to us by men we know, men we love, men we may even be related to. That's what rape culture looks like. And so that's a very sort of somber kind of view of the world that we live in, but the world that people don't want to talk about because rape, it's not nice. We don't want to talk about it. It's not nice. It's not nice. It's a hemorrhoid removal operation on the television. I was pretty scared coming here to do this talk today because it's quite daunting standing in front of a room full of people and, and sharing your ideas on things. Had a couple of nervous poos. Um, <laughs> sorry. I forgot that women aren't supposed to shit. Uh, see, I'm shaking. We all get nervous. But this is the thing, is that standing here in front of people, in front of an audience, anyone doing that, it's, it's scary and it's a good kind of fear. And I want to be liberated by my fear. I don't want to be imprisoned by it. And this is what I think. You know, Paul mentioned a comment before talking about terrorism. I do think it's an act of terrorism to raise girls to believe that the world is not safe for them. Because what it does is it forces us to diminish ourselves. It means that we take up less space than we are entitled to. We live in a world where women are taught they do not have the right to walk down the street at night because they don't have the access to the same space as men. And I think that that's an act of terrorism. And I will not negotiate with terrorists on those terms. So I do not engage people in conversations about why women need to protect themselves or why our vaginas are like cars. I just don't tolerate it. And this is what we all have to start doing. I have a boyfriend, which I know is is kind of crazy because as a, you know, obviously radical separatist lesbian feminist, <laughs> as a lot of my fans on Daily Life call me, um, I'm not supposed to have a boyfriend, but, you know, I did fashion him out of gingerbread and bring him to life with a <laughs> black voodoo magic swirling around in my devil's Datsun. But he exists now, and it still counts. And he often says to me, can we just make it through one dinner where you don't talk about rape? To which I reply, can we just make it through one of Earth's rotations around the sun where I can walk on the street with as much right to safety as you just because you have a penis? And actually, statistically speaking, based on what we know about male-on-male violence, he is less likely to be safe on the streets than me. But that's not the way that we talk about violence and safety. It is convenient for people to make women afraid because it keeps us controlled. 
I understand that rape makes people uncomfortable. A lot of things make me uncomfortable. For example, I am uncomfortable with the fact that millions of girls and women are raped around the world each year and only a handful of them ever see justice prevail. I'm uncomfortable with the fact that because of the work that I do, I stand in front of an audience like this and I automatically think which third of this audience has experienced sexual assault or violence or rape. And I'm uncomfortable with the fact that of that proportion of the audience, all of them will have been socialised at some point that you don't talk about these things in polite society. And I'm uncomfortable with the fact that as a white middle-class woman, it's hard for me to talk about rape. But it's even more difficult for a woman of colour, a disabled woman, a woman who's a sex worker, a woman who's living in poverty, a woman who doesn't live here. It's harder for those women to talk about something which is already hard for me to discuss. I'm uncomfortable with those facts. I get it. Rape is uncomfortable. But this is why we need to keep talking about it and we need to keep disrupting people's comfortable lives with it because the result of that is that they actually do start to change. In all of the, the time that I've been writing and writing and writing about rape, in all of the emails that I've gotten from, you know, peeling through the ones that say to me that I'm just jealous because no one wants to rape me because I'm too ugly, because, of course, the only thing worse than being raped is being considered not pretty enough to be raped. Right, Tracy? In all of that, I also get emails from young girls that inspire me, who tell me that the things that I've written and the things that other women like me have written about rape, bringing this conversation into the national dialogue, have let them realise that they're not responsible for what happened to them. It's made them realise that it's not their fault. But even better than that is the emails I get from men who tell me that something about this conversation that we're having now has changed the way that they view the world. It's made them realise how privileged they are. It's made them realise how much entitlement men generally have to space and, and safety. And it's made them want to change things for the better. I received an email from a friend of mine the other day, or I say friend, but we went to school together. So, you know, we haven't talked really in 20 years, but we're Facebook friends because that's how people catch up these days. And he sent me an email out of nowhere with um, a link to a meme, and it was just a Venn diagram of this is, this is what causes rape. And it's things like alcohol, uh, clothing, attitudes, rapists. And the rapist was in red, and the whole Venn diagram was in red. Because the only thing common to all experiences of rape is a rapist. That is the only thing that we can say causes rape, is a rapist. And the way that we talk about rape as if it's some kind of arbitrary thing that just happens to women, that we just walk out of the door one day and just accidentally step in a puddle of it because we weren't paying attention, that's how we remove responsibility from, from the problem. And I believe that to fix the problem, you have to name the problem. And I was really inspired by that email that he sent me because it showed me that this guy, who I would say is kind of like pretty much your average Australian bloke, you know, he likes sports and he's a pretty good guy, he's kind of like on the middle of the fence politically, he doesn't have to be engaged in these topics because society enables him to not be engaged in them. But he has chosen to become engaged because of the things that he's been reading and because of the things that he's been hearing. And it means that he wants to change the world around him for the better. And I'm really inspired by that. And I think that that's why we need to keep talking about these things, even though it makes people uncomfortable, even though people don't like to think about it, even though they like to pretend that it doesn't exist because I would rather people be uncomfortable about rape than be complacent about it.
We just heard clips today from David Pakman laying out the basics of the Pussygate tape. Full Frontal with Samantha Bee detailed what it's like to be a woman with a job. The Trump cast explored the disconnect between the not-all-men-are-terrible and the yes-all-men-are-terrible arguments. The Majority Report explained the concept of consent in response to Raj Limbaugh. In Deep with Angie Coiro spoke with Imani Gandhi about how rape culture manifests itself. Trevor Noah on The Daily Show called bullshit on Trump's locker room talk defense. The Young Turks told the story of a student who took offense to a class that explained consent. Dave Zirin on Edge of Sports read his choice words titled Not in My Locker Room. Our activism for today is in support of the Monument Quilt for Survival survivors of rape and abuse. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk by Clementine Ford titled Your Vagina is Not a Car. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Tyler from Kentucky. I just finished up the episode on the continuance of slavery in America through uh, our prison system. And it really uh, reminded me of a couple books that I recently read that dive into how racial hierarchies were born in the United States in the uh, colonial period. So if, if, if anyone, you or your listeners, are interested in learning how the roots of racial oppression go back all the way to the very beginning of, of uh, European settlement on the American continent, I, I'd really recommend these two books. Um, the first one is American Slavery, American Freedom by Edmund Morgan, which examines... Uh, the colony of Virginia in the 17th century and how uh, class-based anxieties sort of fed into the creation of a racial hierarchy. And uh, it's it's a bit of a dense read at times, but it's it's a very uh, enlightening one. The other book that's far more interesting and definitely an altogether more developed read is uh, Kathleen Brown's Good Wives, Nasty Wench, and the Next Patriarchs gender, race, and power in colonial Virginia. Brown takes a particularly intersectional look at life in colonial Virginia in the 17th century and into the 18th century as well. Her argument largely rests on the idea that the language of gender difference that existed in England and uh, the British Isles in in the 16th and 17th centuries were the basis by which differences of race were built. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And thanks to Tyler, who we just heard in that second voicemail for his book recommendations. And I'm sorry that his voicemail was cut off. That's how it came to me. I didn't edit it or anything, but I I think we got the, the basic gist. So I went and played it anyways. Today, I want to tell you about a documentary I just saw yesterday. It, uh, I think, came out very recently on Netflix. It's a Netflix original called Audrey and Daisy about two different sort of parallel stories about high school girls who are sexually assaulted and the aftermath of that. Uh, So I'm actually just going to play the audio of the trailer for it uh, right here and then talk about it a little bit afterwards. Good morning, Maryville. It's a cold start to the day right now, only 21 degrees. Audrey was one of my only true friends. She was always a happy kid, fun kid. 
and Daisy. She was such a daddy's girl. In a small town, everybody is connected. A lot of these families have been here for generations. This guy started texting me. It was kind of like, oh, older boys want to hang out with us. I think I was drunk. <laughs> the boys were pretty persistent. Then I guess things got worse. She was laying in the yard, and her hair was frozen to the ground. A group of boys crowded around, looking at a phone. You carried her upstairs, passed out. Why did you lie to the police? She said, I'm scared. I did something that I didn't want to do. We took the video. The whole town split up into sides. Daisy against people that were very, very vicious. We started having issues with vandalism. It was picked up in the world of social media. That's when this erupted into a firestorm. The grandson of a Missouri official has walked free. We had our house burned down. These are very hard cases. No nice way to say it. They're liars. The verdict was hard to believe. She said, I can't do this anymore. more important to shield the boys than it did to find justice for the girls. Try this trick and spin it. Girls have as much culpability in this world as boys do. Your head will collapse, but there's nothing. If no one's gonna talk about it, then I will. Where is my mind? It's sad, but after that Where incident, something clicked. We can't ignore an army of voices. The words of our enemies aren't as awful as the silence of our friends. What I like about this film, what I think it does well, is that it, it gives people many perspectives. It, it helps teens get maybe an adult perspective on high school. It also helps adults get the teen perspective on high school, which I think is incredibly important for this conversation. It also gets the boy versus girl perspective on high school and sex and assault and everything related. And I, I think this is incredibly important because I have, you know, vague memories of what it was like to be in high school, but I definitely have adopted the adult perspective, which is like high school. Who gives a shit about high school? All you have to do is survive it. And then you never see 90% of those people ever again. But, you know, a film like this gets you back in that mindset where you, you are reminded how critical everything feels how, uh, you know, when you are in that moment, high school is your entire world and, uh, you know, everything that happens, the, the stakes are incredibly high. You know, your, your perception is your reality and your perception is that high school is everything. So that's how, that's just how the world works. And, and then really interestingly, uh, the other dichotomy, the boy versus girl or attacker versus, you know, survivor perspective they they follow the individuals and the families who are you know who had been attacked and they get you know extended interviews and you know talk with them over long periods of time which is great but they also manage to interview a couple of guys who were convicted and as part of their plea deal they agreed to be interviewed and uh, and so that's valuable you know that's a valuable perspective they 
um, you know, the, the, at least one guy, he was asked kind of, you know, what did he learn through this whole process? You know, that he had assaulted a girl and gone through the process and sort of had everything brought to his attention and everything that was bad about it. And he said that his biggest takeaway was that he learned about the gossip between girls in high school. And what he said was, you know, girls care a lot about that. And guys are just sort of more laid back and, you know, they, they just don't care that much about what's being said. And so he, he definitely didn't understand the depth of what he was saying. I think I have a little bit better grasp. He's talking about the patriarchy. He doesn't know why girls care and guys don't. But that's it. One of the strongest through lines of the movie is the pressure put on women and girls to be perfect to you know maintain a reputation that's never mentioned for the guys and it's that pressure that they feel that makes that gossip so important and why for guys it doesn't have to be as important so yeah like i said just a really interesting sort of perspectives coming from various different directions and this is an issue that we only get through it. We only get past it. We only improve on this through education. We have to get smarter about this stuff and we have to get smart about it really, really early in life. You don't enter, you know, your teenage years or junior high years having any idea how to react to these sorts of situations. But that's when it starts to, you know, really kick into high gear, uh, where kids are finding themselves drinking alcohol or being in bad situations or whatever. And whether they are the, uh, the victim or the perpetrator, pretty much no one knows what they're doing. That, that's my takeaway. And so you know, having open discussions about this and understanding the imperative nature of consent and understanding that basically you know, being drunken or otherwise impaired is enough of a reason to say, that whatever you want to do can't continue no matter how willing a person seems uh, is important to get across. And I actually have a story sort of along these lines uh, from my own life. I, I, there's only one instance that I can think of in which I was told a story of what I now know to be sexual assault uh, committed by people, who, at least one person who was a friend of mine at the time. It was in eighth grade we were like 13 years old and there was, you know, I think three, maybe more, but like three guys and one girl at a house, definitely alcohol, maybe drugs were involved. The girl ended up, ended up completely out of it, but conscious. Two of the guys went in sort of one after the other and assaulted her in details I'm not clear about. And then my friend who tells me the story uh, said that, you know, he went in sort of afterwards to see what was going on or if she was okay. And what she said to him when you were kind of sort of looking up from the bed was, well, I guess it's your turn now. And he, you know, kind of freaked out and knew it was wrong and wanted to get out of there. And, uh, you know, he told me the story at school, maybe the next day, but, I don't think any of us knew what to do with that information. I don't think most adults know what to do with that information. That, you know, I hadn't really thought about that story 
recently, but it's actually sort of a nuanced one. Like a lot of people would hear that and think, well, I guess it was all consensual. She seemed into it, but she was also wasted out of her mind just because she was conscious and who knows what else. Like it was not cool by any stretch. Uh, I think it definitely qualifies as sexual assault, if not uh, rape, depending on what actually happened. And yet we had no idea what to do with that information. And that's kind of my point is why either a film like this or any sort of class, you know, as was discussed in the show, you know, like university is it's it's I mean, it's not too late. You should have that class at a university, but you should have that class in sixth grade and when you're having sexual education that's when you should start that conversation in an age-appropriate way consent is so important and uh and it, it comes up so quickly in people's lives like not every single person's life but every single person needs to have that uh lesson taught to them so that they can have that in their head when they are confronted with a real-life situation so whether you are a teen or a parent of a teen or anywhere in between, uh, I, I definitely recommend Audrey and Daisy. It's on Netflix or any other resources you can get your hands on to try to get this kind of education into people's heads. It's the only way we're going to work through it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music you in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained